Last week I promised that this week we would do a little uh, inquiry or do a little questions and answers. I just thought I'd have, I had a few stray thoughts that I want to see if they can float out and be shared, but uh, it won't, they won't last long. I'm very interested to hear from you. I was thinking today of a passage, a way of referring to the past that a teacher of mine used. He called it the the graveyard of memory and sometimes called it the garbage heap of memory. And, And this was a this was really not, this sounds like a kind of absolute statement. The past is just a graveyard, it's a garbage heap, it doesn't exist, it's gone. Uh, but I think the purpose of referring to it that way was his understanding that we tend to have a, what I think of as a maniacal devotion to the past, to the defining ourselves by what has happened before. By, because all of us, as I mentioned, my first, my first thought last week was that what, what joins us all is that we're all damaged. And that we are all, if you've been born, you have been, you've had some kind of frustrated desire. You've had some kind of wounded pride. You've had some kind of, you've been traumatized in one way or another, some shock some dismay, some, some version of dukkha that, has, uh, that you have been unable to meet and, you, and then because of that your mind has gone on a wild goose chase uh, looking for relief innocently but unfortunately in a future that never arrives, a mind always toppling forward. And, so we, and, we, and all this does is perpetuate the feeling of the feeling that we're not okay and that this moment's not okay. Something's wrong and that something's wrong with me. This is a universal tendency of mind that's born of all of our, all of our wounds. And our wounds are really precious. And as I described last week, our wounds are our path. But... But... In making our wounds our path, we try not to dwell too much excessively in the story of our wounds, even though our stories are really unique and interesting. And it's very important that we tell our story and that we really we talk to each other about what we've been through. There's an element that's really important in that. But at some point in the span of our lives, knowing that we still can have access to our story and tell it when it's helpful, but at some point in the span of our life, we have to drop it. And the way we drop it is dropping into the residue of it, dropping into the pain of it, dropping into the reality that we're here, the reality that we may be sad, we may be depressed, we may be, we may be contracted, we may be any number of things, but we let those wounds we let them call us back to reality, back to here, back to now, back to uh, the only place that we can find relief. 
And when I talk about our maniacal commitment to the past, it's not the, it's not the way that the past lives in you in the present. That's very real and that's very alive. It's the, it's the old, it's the, the repetition of the story. It's the, um, the commitment to believe that because my life happened this way, this is the story, because my life happened this way, my life in the future will happen, likely happen this way. And so we become hostage to the past and then dependent on the future. And in that process, we, we miss the open secret, the ever-present capacity to be free with our wounds, to be free here and now, to address them as any loving human being would, would do, to bring tremendous mercy and kindness to our wounds here, now, and as part of our process to revisit what happened, to tell our story, but to also, in order to find our bearings, really orient ourselves to that place in us, here and now, that cannot be defined by the past. And even if, we feel, even if our wound is bringing us into the present, our sadness, when we just feel the sadness, we are no longer in that moment. We're no longer the sad one. We're no longer the depressed one. We're no longer the insufficient one. We're simply sad in that moment. And if we can ground ourselves in the reality of what we're experiencing, we can see that sad is, has three, three characteristics to it. It's changing. It's momentary. It's unreliable as a place, as a, as a place to make our identity because it's changing. And it's happening. It's just happening. It's, it's happening by itself. It's a selfless process. Sadness is sad. Sadness gets sad. We don't, it is not necessary. And we have to learn to see the difference between just the experience of sadness and the, the overlay called the identity of I'm sad. I'm a sad one. I'm depressed. Whatever it is that you, whatever view or story about yourself that way that you define yourself, as much as it's great to locate ourselves in space and time, to know our individual uniqueness, we cannot be defined by our story. It's just not who we are. It's not what we are. It's just a description of past experiences and a projection of what future experiences are. It is an empty bubble. It's a, it's what we, it's the, it's a field guidebook. It's the, it's the story about you. It's not the reality. A story about you is not you. You, as you're, as you sit here, indefinable, indescribable, completely simple, ordinary, effortlessly awake, timeless, impossible to reduce to any concept. You are the Buddha, awake, just suchness. Tathaga, Tathagata, he was called, one who knows suchness, the way things are, just in their basic reality. So easy to miss that. And we need that suchness. We need to recognize that, that inherent freedom within our hearts and minds, that 
that unconditioned freedom that we are beyond all of our stories. We need to, we need to recognize that natural awareness that we have. As I invited you in the, in the sitting tonight, I said, notice how effortless it is to feel your body. Notice how the mind, the attention naturally moves to the lips or to the ears, to the eyes, to the felt experience of the contact on the rear. To sense that, that very impersonal quality called awareness. But that's really what, um, that's in our heart, that's what we are, is pure, is pure, pure awareness, pure luminosity. We need to know this. We need to be able to put our trust in this. Otherwise, we continually, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, fall into a case of mistaken identity identified with the past, identified with the imagination of the future, missing the reality of the present moment. Which I don't know anybody here that can define yourself if you don't consult your memory. See what you are without looking into the past or the future. What's your direct experience? As one... I think this may be roomy. He says, if you could get rid of yourself just once, the secret of secrets would open to you. The face of the unknown hidden beyond the universe would appear in the mirror of your perception. To know that we are not definable by our past, to have to be able to put our trust in something that is not that is not uh, that it's not wounded allows us to then meet our wounds meet our difficulties meet the inner difficulties meet the outer difficulties with much more um, balance without the demand that our life and things have to make us better because we already know We've discovered first things first that we're already we're already home. We're already one way of saying it, we're already immersed in the very thing that we so deeply long for. We are right here as we are, exactly what we're looking for. Not something we will find tomorrow. Not in time. As I've been quoting lately the Eckhart Tolle line where he says, there is no salvation in time. You can only be free now. So I just think it's important to notice that and notice how much the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves that is the story that springs from our wounds always has freedom happening some other time. Always has it after I get what I want. Get rid of what I don't want. After I become somebody. After I heal myself. And we can spend a, we can spend a long time wandering, waiting, waiting for the uh, end of the rainbow. And that wait is, as, the, as it's described in Sanskrit, is called samsara. Endless wandering, endless waiting.
So to me, the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's realization of freedom is, is the, um, one way of talking about it is the commitment to non-postponement. It's the practice of not postponing, of not waiting, of knowing that the whole purpose of your existence is arrived at in the immediate moment. Just like Alan Watts says, the purpose of dancing is not to arrive at a particular place on the floor. The purpose of music is not to get to the end of the competition, the composition. In dancing, the dancing is the point. In music, the playing or the singing is the point. The same is true with our meditative practice or our spiritual inquiry as the whole purpose is fulfilled in this very moment. And I think if we really take that to heart, orient ourselves toward realization of our of that nature that is unconditioned and unborn that's that's already free here and now, then we can go about responding much more compassionately to our wounds and healing our lives and healing our hearts and breathing where we haven't been able to breathe before and doing those things that we didn't think that we could do because of what happened before. We do them. So I guess I think I was motivated because I I meet with a lot of yogis and and I know the way that um, I know the way that my own mind works a little bit and I know how compelling it is to to want to just feel how bad it's been how hard it's been and to keep building on that but it we create prisons for ourselves and it's not necessary Anyway, that's all I want to say. Any questions about your practice, anything I've said? I'd really be interested to hear what you're, what you're actually noticing. What makes you think that you're not free? <laughs> What's happening? Sitting, your life in general. Please, please speak loudly enough so everyone can hear, if you can. I'm working on it. It's e- when you're in a, involved in a problem, it's easy to forget the things that you remember here. I think the only thing that I remember is something that is immediate and present here. Anything. It could be just the knowing that you're noodling about a problem. Just to know that. This is, this is the mind, this is my mind thinking about, I'm thinking about this right now. Just to orient yourself, because we don't just think about things. We tend to be so lost in our thoughts that we don't know we're here thinking about them. So we're, our, in our mind, we're constructing the future or the past and thinking that these are two places that actually exist. So how can I, so how can I break that, 
that pattern is I, when I do wake up to where I am, which is here, the only place I want to really, for a time anyway, I don't want to make this into a religion ultimately. Once you're present, you don't need to do much. But you want to make a habit for a while of really knowing, oh, this is what it's like to be present. Really get to know it in a way where it becomes more vivid, more alive, more compelling, more desirous, more, more um, interesting than whatever may or may not happen in the future. That has to be part of our, our life practice. Otherwise, we are both the seduction and the pleasure and the, the, the addiction to our, our planning and our speculating and our worrying is so strong that it just overpowers our capacity to really connect right here. So we start with our bodies every time. Find your body as soon as you wake up. Sense what, you're, what's, what it's like to be thinking about that problem, solving that problem. How does it feel in the body? How does your body feel about it? What's it, what is your, what's it feel like in your mind? Is it, is your mind clear? Is it foggy? Is it spacious? Is it contracted? What's happening? Just a little bit of orientation. Then you can continue to think about what you need to think about. It may become a little less uh, anxiety ridden. Uh, it may be a little less um, burdensome. Because usually in our thoughts we think that whatever we're doing with our mind is is make or break. It's the difference between happiness and unhappiness. But in fact, that unhappiness and happiness is not negotiable. That's your nature. That shouldn't depend on anything. But that's something that we only learn by finding our seat in the middle of both pleasure and pain and be able to to have balance, to be more here. So I don't know if that answers your question. So something in the immediate environment, it could be something you look at, it could be a sound, it can be, I think it's always most useful to put your mind, to let your mind sink into your body. Any other questions? Please, comments. Yeah, making the present moment more desirable than being uh, being in the imagination of the past, future. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. Well, I've lost that desire to be present, and and I think we lose the desire to be present because of neglect. Because when it's neglected. Our bodies recognize it, our bodies register it as, as holding, as a kind of holding our breath, as, a kind, as, as being a little bit hostage to what's next or what's happened before. Present becomes this place we, we pass through on our way somewhere else, and our body doesn't feel good, so we don't want to feel that initially. And then our body, when it doesn't feel good, it tends to generate many more worried thoughts that we will continue to feel that there is always the potential that we'll even feel worse. And so we're constantly strategizing to try to make sure that I don't feel worse in the future, that I feel better. 
And then there's complete uncertainty about whether I'll feel better or not. And that just keeps, keeps the uh, cycle of tension building. And again, that's the, that is a case of mistaken identity. We're identified with the story of the someone who we imagine ourselves to be that has gone from the past, is moving through the present, on our way to the future, and the fact is we've never left here. Nothing's happened. And our body just responds with, with a, a, a kind of recoiling from having been neglected so much. And it just doesn't work. So it takes, at first, when we start reorienting ourselves to the present, it's, it's kind of a wasteland. As I often tell groups when they first come, I, insight at the beginning. I think at the beginning of any time that we stop after we've been on the move, Insight at those moments is usually bad news. Our hearts are heavy, bodies are exhausted, minds are just energetically, we're, we're buzzing. There's not that, I, I even noticed it tonight from moving a lot during the day and having so many conversations that when I sat tonight, it was, it, it was a long time before the winds began to drop. And then I felt I was here again, even though I was here the whole time. But there's here, and then there's here. And I don't, I generally don't like to set up here versus here, you know, make a big deal out of that, try to just see it the way it is. But there is something compelling about that moment that we really settle in, that we really arrive. And I think that's worth becoming a little bit more devoted to, at least for a time until we're so oriented to the present that our desire to be somewhere else begins to diminish, and then we can deal with it. Once you're here and your life is more oriented toward the present, then it's okay to deal with the moments when your winds are up or your winds are down, whether you're settled or unsettled. It doesn't matter so much. At least you've come out of the tangle of your imagination enough to know where reality is, and you can use everything that happens as your as your anchor. And then everything that is noticed becomes the the cause of settling. You can't settle if you're not feeding a story. I mean, you can't not settle if you're you're not feeding (laughs) us. We can't help but settle if we let our stories drop. That really did not come out right. <laughs> so what else is new? Please, Madison. So you become you use a tape to meditate, but now you notice that you're and that helps you settle because your mind's busy. But now you're even thinking over the tape. Yeah. So the tapes become just rote sound at times. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be clear when we're, when our mind is unclear and scattered and. And we're just really unmindful, where mindfulness doesn't seem to be going along for the ride into our thoughts. Uh, 
there's really not much you can do until you notice that. And when you notice that, when there is a moment of clear comprehension that this is what's happening, you want to exploit that moment. You want to go, wow, isn't that interesting? You don't want to make a case for the prosecution at that moment, saying, oh, I'm such a bad meditator, or I need to do this, this, and this, and this. You want to just notice, oh, this is a moment where awareness shined through, and I noticed that I had been just drifting along. Thank you. I'm now here again. So be, do a practice of thank you every time you notice how scattered you are, because those are moments of mindfulness. That's actually what wakes us up. But the tendency is to, to go right into a narrative about, about what we need to do and what we're, you know, what's wrong and why we're not a good meditator, all those things. So to limit that, just keep appreciating. Hmm. Here I am. On the other hand, if you're, if you're a little, there are antidotes too. You want, you might want to get up and do some walking first. Get your, get your circulation going a little bit and, uh, Lying down, yeah, it's all an experiment. See what happens. I, I think you'll be the authority. Please. spend a lot of time solving problems trying to solve yeah the solving you can call that the solving mind Your mind says you have to solve it now because you're meditating. This is the best time to solve a problem. <laughs> yeah, so I, I really want you to, every time you notice that, that's when I want, I want you to put your, feel the pain of that. Feel the tension, feel everything that happens so that if nothing more, it becomes, it becomes the cause of some compassion. Because if you just keep applying antidotes, you really won't get. You tell me that it's painful, but do you? Do we actually let yourself feel the pain? Because that becomes the reality of that moment. Let me just feel that. And then if you feel that, hopefully that will have some impact on settling, but it will also maybe tenderize your heart a little bit. And, and maybe it will help you to, at least for a few moments, Bring some loving kindness to your, and you can you can shift in that moment to loving kindness practice. Rub your heart a little bit. Say, um, may I be, may I have ease in my heart, and a sense of well-being. Something like that. Some simple phrase of metta. But that's a, that's actually great insight and a lot of moments of mindfulness of seeing how crazy your mind is. 
And I say that very loosely because we're all like that. We all have a version of, of uh, obsessive, some kind of pattern that gets that's a broken record. And it's very delicate how you change channels, how you, how you reboot the computer, whatever you, metaphor you want to use. It's, you don't want to do it with aversion. You don't want to do it with any, building any case against yourself. You simply want to acknowledge, as you say, it's painful. Feel it. Bring some kindness. Uh, find your breath if you need to. Look, orient yourself to the room. Begin again, knowing that every moment's a new beginning. Every moment's a new beginning. So forget what's happened up to that point. So it's, it's, it's a slow break. It's called cutting the cutting through, cutting the chains of, of delusion. And it's, it feels like hard labor at first because we're going against the stream of, of very strongly conditioned patterns. But try to be thankful every time you notice a pattern. That means you've broken it for that moment. That's actually freedom. As long as you don't go right back into talking about how, what an obsessive meditator you are. Or an obsessive plant, or what do you call it? Solver. Please. Applying compassion to our suffering. Helen has realized that she has deeply underestimated the need for self-compassion. Blown yourself off a lot, is that the expression you used? There's a lot more layers to that. Exactly. I can't say it too much about the importance of self-compassion, and and thanks for echoing it. And we really underestimate the, the need. We just, we're not really wired uh, culturally, to bring tenderness and kindness to ourselves. It's the one, the most obvious thing that the Dalai Lama noticed about Westerners is how terribly hard we are on ourselves. So it, whatever you can do to begin a, that uh, tenderizing process, I think if you feel, your, feel the pain of things, it will happen naturally. But I think we can help it along with kind thoughts, Kind actions, taking good care of ourselves, appropriate self-care is a, an act of compassion. Please. Cut out all your vices and had a five-year off-and-on meditation practice. Try to live mindfully. Mm-hmm. Being kind. What's wrong with a little escaping? Who said there was anything wrong with a little escaping? Uh, 
So you're denying yourself, you're denying yourself pleasure. I shouldn't engage in this because it'll take me out of the present moment. I think I, I think I got it, and I think it's really the the difference between studying yourself, studying what happens, versus adopting a view of what happens. When we adopt a view, in other words, we adopt a religion, then we we end up putting ourselves in a little bit of a straitjacket, and then get really uptight and miserable trying to be good rather than discovering through just noticing what happens when we let the let the the steam out when we discharge when we distract ourselves really seeing what happens and with a with an open heart and then if our if our the say if the ending of our vices comes through our direct experience moment to moment then it's a joyful process of letting go. But if we're trying to be good, it means usually that we've adopted a religion and it's actually not so good for us. Oh my God, she wants to watch TV. <laughs> Shocking. I don't know if you can come here anymore. <laughs> because if two of us are watching TV, <laughs> the group's going to fall apart. Oh, just cut loose and see what happens. <laughs> You'll be sick of it after a very short time. <laughs> Last comment or question in the back. It's your nature to be mean? Yeah, you've noticed a lot of negative thoughts and a lot of mean thoughts. Yes, it's not your nature, it's your conditioning. And it is usually very shocking to see what's, until we slow down and pay attention, it's, it's, it's a little shocking to see how... Um, Yeah, I had no idea how many. Yes, first is noticing it, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I can't hear you so well, but I'll just say that our, our thinking patterns have, I don't know how old you are, but we have not only this lifetime of practice strength in the habits of thinking, 
but it's really beginningless. It's internalized from parents, from other, and it's just part of our conditioning. But every single moment that you that that's noticed, uh, then it's possible to see that those thoughts don't belong to you. They're just the thoughts are just thinking themselves, and it's wonderful that you have more space around those thoughts to see, but to expect them to not arise. As I often tell groups, is the, the practice is not a practice of deleting. It's just, it's a practice of changing our relationship, and already you're not acting out in the same way than you did when those thoughts arise. Before we we're just carried along by I ha- had an, an irritated or a negative thought. The next thing was would be some action. If that's mitigated at all through mindfulness, you're already that's a that's a that's freedom. That's a kind of freedom. And the more you practice, the less personally you'll take your thoughts. They're not, they're not yours. They're your neighbors. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, we have to call it a night. I so appreciate everybody's comments and questions. Just leave you with a couple, a couple passages that are near and dear to me. One from Punjaji, who I mentioned earlier this evening. He says, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by noticing these I thoughts. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to, to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. And put in a slightly more humorous tone from Hafez, What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. (laughs) So let's, in these last moments, find our home in the present moment, whether you feel pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Whether your day has gone well, your night has gone well or not, just let yourself feel what it's like to be here. Don't look back. Don't look ahead. Just feel the fruits of your orienting to this unfolding now. Feel the blessings of your own awareness, good company. Feel grateful for your existence not for what you have or what you will have, but what you are before you think. And if you have sensed any blessing to your practice, to us being together, any goodness, any, ble- any, any benefits, let's remember that in this moment, not only do we touch ourselves, but we are touched by all life, by all beings, that we are deeply interwoven, interdependent. And so we 
let the blessings of our own life widen to an immeasurable sense in all directions to include all beings and send the blessings of our practice with a deep wish that all beings everywhere can have happiness and peace and the causes of happiness and peace increasing. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. A deep wish that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow here and now and not postpone a realization of this natural great peace. And a deep wish that all beings grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the inevitable joys and sorrows with less reactivity. A deep wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for being here. Thanks for your questions. A reminder that um, I just want to give you a little sneak preview. I will be here next week, but then for the, the week of August 7th and August 14th, you will be visited by somebody else in this seat, and that will be for two weeks running, and I want you all to come and tell all your friends. Uh, we will have Mark Coleman, who is one of my colleagues, a wonderful teacher, author of the book Awake in the Wild, uh, leads wilderness retreats, uh, just a beautiful poet and uh, lover of the Dharma and very deep understanding. He'll be taking this seat for a couple weeks and I'll be away. But next week I'll be here and uh, it doesn't matter who's here. Just come and practice with each other. And just a reminder of our $150 a week room rental, much appreciation for any any generosity that allows us to keep doing this. And uh, whoever takes this seat uh, offers the teachings freely, so the invitation is for you to practice generosity in the form of supporting me or whoever's here so that we can keep doing what we do. So it's all about giving and receiving, and thanks in advance for your generosity. Baskets over there. And if you are new to new here and you want to offer some Donna or generosity, and you want it to be tax-deductible, you can write a check to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church and put Mission Dharma on the memo line, and it can, we can uh, get some kind of form that will allow you to take it as a tax deduction. Anyway, thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.